All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. It was two years ago that this church stepped out in faith into the community in a new and different way by hosting a play called Freud's Last Session. Mark Branner, who is a member of Kaimaki Christian and a theater professor up at UH, uh, conducted the play, directed the play, and it was an amazing play. It was a dialogue between Dr. Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis, and uh, they were debating the existence of God. And the purpose of that play was to provide an opportunity for us to bring unchurched friends to a, a play when they probably wouldn't come to church and spark conversations about God. And it was great for that kind of a vehicle. Well, it was about that time that Mark Granner began to tell me a story about how he had directed a play in Los Angeles in 2009. He'd played Jesus in that play, but really the play was about Judas. It was called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. And he said it had had an amazing impact on the lives of people who were far from church, who would never darken the door of a church. And as he told me about it, he said, now, it's, it's an R-rated play. There's a lot of foul language in that play, uh, but it really touches the hearts of people. And he told me about a young woman named Virginia. She was one of his theater students there, and Virginia never went to church. He said, you know, she had blue and green hair. She had a uh, tattoo flowing down her arm, a uh, quote from Macbeth, Shakespeare's Macbeth, be bloody, bold, and resolute. And yet she was in the sound booth every night of that play. And in the final scene of the play, Judas is cursing Jesus. He spits in his face, is rejecting Jesus, and yet Jesus continues to reach out to him with love and grace. And so every night, Mark said, Virginia would come down from the sound booth and uh, tears would be flowing down her face. Well, days after the play, Virginia emailed Mark and said, Mark, I know you and your family go to church. What do you do in church? He said, well, you know, Virginia, it's kind of like the play. We talk about Jesus. And she said, can I come with you? And she did. And uh, it was only a matter of time until she came to know Jesus and opened her heart to the Lord and became a follower of Christ. Many months ago now, Mark told me that she'd married and that she and her husband had been sent out by a church as missionaries of Christ. And I said, wow, that's powerful. I had gone to the elders of our church with the vision of, why don't we partner with another church or some churches and do this play here, and here are the problems with it, here's the cautions about it. And the, vi the vision was caught by the elders, and the, uh, the elders affirmed it, as did Lisette, our worship pastor, and Nilva, uh, our drama team leader, and our drama team. And they stepped up to the plate, and they got behind this play. And so now this is the third and final weekend of the last days of Judas Iscariot. Some of you went to it. Uh, some of you took unchurched friends to this play. Uh, some of you didn't go to the play, 
And that is okay. That's fine. Because we've been warning you, uh, this is not a play for church people. This is a play especially directed to the hearts of unbelievers. And if you'd be offended by the language and some of the vulgarity in that play, we totally get that. And, uh, but that is the purpose and point of this play. Well, I went twice. I went to the dress rehearsal, and uh, I did a pre-show announcement several times through the last few weeks. And uh, then I went again a week from last night and took some guests with me. And I want to tell you, they were moved by that play. So was I. In fact, I was so moved by the play and the themes that were addressed in it and the questions that were raised by it that I said, I'm going to devote a message to the concepts in this play. And I won't be able to answer all the questions or address all the issues, but I want to do some of them. And I even sent out an email to everybody that I knew from our church that had gone to the play to say, what questions did it raise in your mind? What were your impressions? And so... I can't bring all those into this message. They were wonderful. There, were, there was a lot of profound things that came back to me. Hopefully some of that, I think, is uh, wound through this message. But I believe, in short, the play, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot, is a call to action for the church, for our church. I think it's a call to action for every one of us who call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'll set that forth in about three statements here, which I believe are a message to us from the Lord. There's an outline in your bulletin, and here's the first. We who follow Christ must proactively engage with those outside the church, which is clearly the heart of Jesus. When I went to the dress rehearsal that night, I'd been warned. I knew that there was some profanity in it, some foul language, but it hit me like a freight train. It's like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that much, I have to confess. Now, I spent some years working in construction, and, uh, and yet I thought, wow, we'd have been embarrassed, you know? I mean, I, I, I've been away from that scene for quite a while. And it just really struck me. Now, the second time that I went, I was able to hear the power uh, of the play and the lines and what was expressed there. And I think it really helped. And, and in fact, I understood because I first questioned, will unchurched people, will unbelievers even see or hear the concept of grace and God's love that comes through this play. And I think I can report to you at this time, yes, a number of them have captured that. It's begun conversations with people. Let me share a few of the reports that have filtered back from unbelievers. One of them was when the a member of the board of directors of a local theater here in Honolulu approached Mark Branner after one of the plays and said to him, this is the best thing that's happened in Hawaii. He said, it, it, to me it was like a two and a half hour church service. And I thought, well that's a different kind of a service than I've ever been to, but he doesn't go to church, right? Another person, an actor in the play, told Mark, I'm, I'm very spiritual, but I'm not religious. In fact, I'm 
against organized religion. She said, I've never cracked a Bible. I've been scared that I would be judged by it. Wow, powerful. And yet, now she's talking about the themes of the play like forgiveness and grace that are embedded in it. There's another young woman that was at the play, and there was a Q&A session after with the cast. And uh, in the last scene of the play, Jesus, after being rejected by Judas, having Judas spit in his face, embraces him and then washes his feet. Well, in the Q&A session at the end, one young woman raised her hand and said, you know, in that last scene, why was, why was Jesus rubbing Judas' feet? She didn't know about, you know, the upper room and foot washing and, and what that was all about. It wasn't rubbing his feet, it was washing his feet, right? We know that, but there's a lot of people that don't, and sometimes we forget that. And that's why it's so important uh, for us to initiate uh, engagement with those who, that are far from the church. These people are now talking about the concepts that the Bible sets forth. And everybody wants forgiveness. Everybody needs grace. We who have received it know that for sure. But that's the longing of every human heart. And a play like this opens conversations and gives us the opportunity if we will engage with those who don't come to church. And you know something? That was so the heart of Jesus. All you have to do is read the Gospels to see that. Read them with fresh eyes and see how he interacted with them. The Gospel of Matthew tells the story of, of Jesus when he's calling his disciples, he stops by the tax collector's booth, Matthew's, and invites him to become one of his followers. What? This guy's banned from the temple or the synagogues. And Jesus invites him to be one of his followers. And Matthew comes. He leaves it all behind and follows Jesus. And then he invites Jesus to his home. And he invites all his friends, these fellow tax collectors. And they're having a party that night. And Jesus is there. And I bet he heard some profan profanity that night too. And probably didn't stand up and correct them. I mean, he was there with them. And then the religious people, the Pharisees, were standing outside and said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with those tax collectors and sinners? Matthew chapter 9. Verse 12 says, And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, now these Pharisees that were criticizing Jesus for being, as they called him, a friend of sinners, they were very religious. And they wouldn't miss going to the temple or going to the synagogue. They would offer their sacrifices. And yet Jesus said, no, God wants you to extend Mercy to those who need to know him. So we, if we follow Jesus, will be among them. We'll love them. We'll listen to them. We'll engage with them. We'll take the initiative to know some unbelievers. Now, Judas may not have been your thing. And uh, as I said, we said, that's fine. Uh, you stay away from Judas, that play, if that would be offensive to you. But... You're not off the hook if you're a follower of Christ. 
Every one of us needs to find circumstances, venues, contexts in which we can get to know those who are far from God if we have the heart of Jesus. Because we follow him into those uh, situations where we can hear their hearts, know their struggles, and uh, care about them. And uh, it's not comfortable to do so sometimes. But Jesus, who gave his life on a cross to redeem sinners, found no comfort on a cross. And he told us, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, it isn't always going to be comfortable. We're going to hear some things we may not like to hear uh, and hear some things we may not agree with. It's not comfortable, but there's no comfort zones on a cross. But to follow Jesus, we'll find ourselves stepping out in faith to engage people in places we may not like to have gone. I think that's a call to the church. A call to the church for action from this play. Here's another one. We who follow Christ must develop an informed biblical worldview in a decidedly post-Christian culture. Boy, it used to be when I first entered the ministry, you'd talk to people about Jesus. You could start with the gospel and tell them about Jesus, and they were right on track with you. But anymore, you've got to do a lot of pre-evangelism with a lot of people and talk to them about the Bible and why they should believe the Bible and creation and all of that before you ever get to the gospel because our, our culture in America has moved off of its Christian foundation and many of them have never read the Bible. They don't know anything about it. And so we sure shouldn't condemn them for that. Uh, we should love them but be informed ourselves about what the Bible says and uh, be in a position to share that with them. Let me tell you about the setting of the last days of Judas Iscariot trial. It's staged in a courtroom in purgatory, somewhere between heaven and hell. Judas is visible, but he's in the ninth circle of hell, whatever that is, and uh, he's in a catatonic state for most of the play. And in the courtroom itself in purgatory, I mean, there's the judge, there's the prosecuting attorney who's trying to keep Judas in hell. There's the defense attorney who's trying to get him out of hell. And then there are a parade of witnesses that are called to the stand and cross-examined. Now, some of those witnesses are biblical characters. Some are hysteric, historical. A little few of them are historical. Uh, some of them are historical figures. And some of them are fictitious characters. I mean, Henry... Henrietta Iscariot opens the play talking about her son. She's a fictitious character, although he certainly would have had a mother. Uh, there's St. Monica who speaks into the play. Well, St. Monica really was a woman. She was the mother of Augustine, but I think quite different from the one portrayed by the play. Mother Teresa is called to the stand, back from heaven to talk about Judas as is Simon the Zealot, one of Judas' disciples. There's, well, there's Mary Magdalene who testifies. And Dr. Sigmund Freud makes another appearance in this play, testifying himself. Caiaphas is there, the high priest of Jesus' day. Pontius Pilate, the governor in the New Testament account of the crucifixion. 
And Satan himself makes an appearance and is cross-examined uh, as the last witness. In talking about this play, and I've talked a lot with Mark about it through the last days and weeks, uh, he reminded me when I told him, you know, I didn't agree with some of the statements in that play. Some of them were certainly not biblical that were made. He reminded me, you got to understand, a play is a work of art. It's like a painting. It's designed to speak to the heart and not to the intellect. And besides, in a play, here we got a courtroom setting, and people are going to say in this play things that they believe uh, that aren't necessarily true. And uh, that's what theater is all about. I learned a little bit about theater here and uh, heard some things I haven't heard in a long time, actually. But I did some research on the playwright, and that was informative. Stephen Adley Girgis uh, grew up in a Catholic school, and when he was eight years of age, uh, he heard about Judas, this betrayer of Jesus who'd sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, uh, then went out and hung himself, and uh, would be forever sentenced to hell. That's the Catholic teaching on Judas. And he didn't think that was fair. It confused his eight-year-old mind. In fact, he didn't understand why an all-powerful yet merciful God would cast Judas away to hell. Here's how he put it. I just didn't get it. It's like, if God is good and is all-forgiving, why didn't he forgive Judas? Why would Judas be in hell? Why would anybody? As he grew into adulthood, those questions remained. He became a playwright, and then he wrote The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. And he wrote it in the street vernacular of New York City because he wanted to reach modern-day audiences, hence the profanity throughout. Well, the play posed the questions, what led to Judas' downfall? Was it really his fault? Did Jesus want Judas to betray him, to fulfill his mission? Does Jesus still love Judas after the fact? Wow. Well, when you see the themes that are woven through the play, you notice, if you know anything about the Catholic Church, that some of them are decidedly Catholic, and that, there's a reason for that there was a Jesuit priest who was the advisor to Girgis and to the cast for six months during the development of that play. And uh, Girgis was largely informed, he says, by this Jesuit priest. And so some of the assertions that are made in the play and in that courtroom are from the Catholic tradition. Some of them are from popular culture. Some of them are false, and some of them are true. But how would you know which are false and which are true, and which come from a tradition, and which come from the Bible? Well, you'd know if you know Scripture, because we know that God's Word is true. Jesus said it's the foundation to build your life on. And in fact, how would you know if you go to a movie, if there's an agenda behind it that is not true, unless you knew scripture, or watching a television documentary, or reading a blog on the internet, 
or sitting in a university classroom where maybe the professor doesn't believe in Christianity at all and sees it as her or his goal to dissuade you from your faith. How do you know what's true? You know if you have a foundation in Scripture and are learning the truth of God's Word, which often stands in contrast with a decaying culture. And so that's the challenge to us, as it was the challenge in the first century and everywhere in between. When the Apostle Paul wrote to his young, uh, the person he was mentoring, Timothy, who was over there pastoring in Ephesus, he warned him about this. In fact, he said, But mark this, Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yeah. People who are deceived themselves will go on deceiving. It happens all the time. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, all scripture, Timothy, is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's powerful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that every person can be equipped for good works. It's the scriptures that lead us to salvation and enable us to help others on their way to salvation. Paul wanted Timothy to know that. We need to know that. That that foundation is essential for discerning truth from error in a post-Christian culture. Some of the issues that were raised in the play I want to address briefly. I wish I had more time to do this. But let me spark some of your thinking and answer some of your questions because from the survey that I sent out to our church people that had gone to the play, these are some of the questions that came back. For instance, purgatory, where the play was staged. Is there such a place as purgatory? Someone asked, is purgatory a real idea or is this life final when it comes to God and our place in eternity? Does a person have another opportunity to receive salvation after this earthly life? Well, now the short answer to all three of those questions is no. No purgatory, no second chance. It's not a biblical doctrine. In fact, the concept of purgatory originally came from pagan religions, whether in uh, Egypt, Persia, India, filtering into the Greek and the Roman religions. Some of that flowed into parts of Judaism, and some came, the rabbis came to believe in a place they called Gehenna, and that was a place of torment for uh, the dead in a waiting place. Some of it began to filter into the early church, and some of the early church fathers, not the apostles, but some of the early church fathers later on began to hint at it, but the concept of purgatory wasn't made a church doctrine until six centuries after Christ, when Pope Gregory the Great declared that a doctrine, and then they developed the doctrine of purgatory. That was a sad thing, because this concept of purgatory, though not biblical, uh, was used to oppress 
and exploit many people. It, it, it found a place in the hearts of people because it talked about how if you had committed venal sins, the Catholic Church divided between mortal and venal sins, mortal sins, you go to hell. But venal sins, you know, and if you're not perfect, you've committed venal sins, you've got to go to purgatory for hours or days or months or centuries, depending, and where your sins are burned off. It resonated with people because we have a sense that somehow we have to pay for our sins. We have to do something. Even though Christ died on the cross, I've got to contribute to this. And so that's why people were receiving it. Plus, they didn't know Scripture. And so the church, an increasingly corrupt church, used the concept of purgatory to keep their people in fear and terror of purgatory in an afterlife so that they would be willing to give great sums of money, anything they had, poor people even giving what they had, to rescue relatives that were in purgatory, if a priest would say prayers for them. People in the Middle Ages, they gave estates to the church so that they wouldn't spend as much time in purgatory and many prayers would be said for them to get them out of purgatory. So that nations where the Catholic Church wielded great influence, sometimes the church owned a quarter to a third of the land in those nations. And it would take revolutions like in France and other nations uh, to overthrow that and return the land to the people. It was a concept that was used to exploit and oppress people, but it was a concept and is a concept that isn't found in Scripture. In fact, Scripture denies it and sets forth the truth where Jesus said that he goes to prepare a place for us and if, he come, if we trust in him, he comes and receives us that where he is, where he, uh, we may be also. He said, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Paul said, the Apostle Paul said to be absent from this body is to be at home with the Lord. We go right to be with Jesus. No purgatory. We get a ticket to heaven if we put our trust in the one who paid for all our sins. Because John said if we confess our sins, if we admit our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all sin and unrighteousness. We don't pay for him. We don't earn our salvation. Christ paid the full price on the cross for our sins. And what about uh, the finality of this life when it comes to believing and receiving? The Hebrew writer said, and inasmuch as it is appointed unto men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Yeah, it's imperative that in this life we believe the gospel, we receive the grace of God, because there's no purgatory, there's no second chance after this life. Christ's sacrifice paid in full the price for our sins. But we need to believe, we need to receive by faith. Now Judas himself, in the play, uh, many argued for him and suggested that he was more a victim than a villain. And by the way, there have been people that have set that forth, commentators, scholars, some have, have postulated that, especially in more modern times, 
saying, well, maybe he was more a victim of his circumstances, and after all, he was predestined for this because Scripture said this. And so it brings into the concept of predestination or free will. So is Judas responsible or not? In fact, in one of the Q&A sessions that I was at, one of the persons in the audience, uh, a film critic I later found out, uh, asked the question after he said, I used to be a Christian, but I threw that all the way and, all the way and went into the arts. He said, um, I, I heard the Bible had just been written by men, so I don't believe that anymore, but do people of faith believe that Judas was a villain? And I had a great conversation with him after the play, and I said, well, I'm a person of faith, and I believe Judas was a villain, and here's why. And I was able to share with him some things from Scripture. For instance, in John chapter 12, we had the account of the woman pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus. And then one of the disciples protested. Remember who that was? That was Judas, right. And he said, well, couldn't this money have been, uh, couldn't this perfume have been sold and the money given to the poor? John said, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, because, but because he was greedy. And he used to steal money from the money box. So we began to see into the character of Judas there. Judas starts making bad decisions and ultimately comes to such a low level that he strikes a bargain with the priest to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In the last discourse of Jesus, Jesus says, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed, just as it is written, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. It would be good for this man if he'd never been born. That's what Jesus said. In the play, Judas, uh, excuse me, Satan says that, but it was Jesus that said that. So Judas was a villain, no doubt about it. He gave in to despair and uh, committed these acts, uh, these sinful acts, and uh, we know that. Now, what else do we know about Judas? We know that from Scripture he went out and hung himself after he had tried to return the 30 pieces of silver to the priests. They wouldn't receive it. He threw it down at their feet. They bought a field of land with it, which became a cemetery for poor people. But Judas went out and hanged himself. And so what about his fate? Well, Catholic tradition says he's sentenced to hell forever for one reason, not only because of his sin, but because he committed suicide. There were no last rites performed for him. Scripture doesn't say that. Catholic tradition does. Scripture doesn't tell us where Judas is. He committed suicide. Does that mean he's forever in hell? No. Suicide's never called the unforgivable sin in Scripture. Suicide is sin. It's a sin against the body. It's a sin against God. But we're all sinners. And we need to be saved by the grace of God. And uh, when we die, if we are in Christ, we go to be with the Lord. We don't know. Uh, we know Judas showed remorse. There's no indication that he repented. But we can't judge him. We need to leave that to God because he alone is judge. But we need to understand the truth about concepts like suicide and, and uh, free will and 
predestination, see that in God's mind they work together, and he works them out, and he's the judge. One more I'll mention, and that is the problem of evil, because it was addressed in the play. Theologians call that the theodicy, the problem of evil, the character of God, and it was posed by the defense attorney in the play, and she was addressing Satan. She was arguing with Satan. She was cross-examining Satan, and she said this, is God good or is God all-powerful? In other words, is God all good but not powerful enough to rescue Judas or other people from their suffering and their sin? Or is God all-powerful but he's not good enough or merciful enough to rescue them? Well, we Christians know from Scripture there's a third alternative. It isn't that he's either all-powerful but not good or all-good but not powerful. Actually, he's all-good, and he had all-power, but he came in weakness as a man to live a life that was sinless and then in weakness to offer himself on a cross so that we who are guilty could go free. That's the gospel. That's grace that is extended to us who need salvation. And it came because a powerful and a good God was willing to become weak and vulnerable and humiliated on a cross. And that's where we find salvation. But the point is that we need to know the truth of Scripture. We don't know all the answers. None of us do. But we can continue to study the word, get into Ohana groups, and talk about these concepts. And when unbelievers that we're engaging with ask us questions that we don't know the answer to, we need to be humble and say, I don't know. That's a great question, but let me see what I can find out about that and continue those conversations. That's, in a post-Christian culture, a call to action for the church. And then one more. We who follow Christ must realize that people far from God are hungering from, for grace. Mark Branner, the director of the play, he reminded me that the purpose of this play is to be a metaphor of grace. To, to speak to the hearts of people that grace is available if they will seek it. In fact, he wrote uh, in the playbill here a director's note. And I want to share it with you in part. He said, why would the son of missionaries to Taiwan uh, be even associated with a play like this? And then he says, I am obsessed with this production. Why? Perhaps because I need what it offers. I am Judas. And at times, perhaps we are all Judas, full of despair and lacking any hope in this world in desperate need of forgiveness, but not deserving any of it. And the continual message I need to hear is the message of the play, the message of grace. Judas screams and spits and curses at Jesus, trapped in his own prison. But Jesus never leaves Judas. Instead, he offers an unconditional love, an efficacious divine love that sees and knows the worst in Judas, but stays and offers love. So I confess my addiction to this story because I'm addicted to the manifestations of grace, addicted to the glimpses 
of transcendence, addicted to the idea of redemption. And I find it so powerfully and beautifully in this play. Where else can I go? These are the words of eternal life, writes Mark Branner. Well, I think if you went to that play as a believer, it impacted you with these themes. But I'll tell you, that theme of grace did resonate with many who would never go to a church. Let me share a few examples with you. Mark wrote me an email and said, after the show on Saturday evening, a gentleman came up to me, shook my hand vigorously, thanked me very much for the performance, and asked, okay, according to the play and according to your playing of Jesus, what does Judas need to do to accept Jesus? I answered simply, take his hands. He's reaching out to Judas in that last scene. Then he asked again, but what else does a person need to do? I answered in the same way, quoting a line from Mother Teresa in the play. One must participate in one's own salvation. I explained that the participation is simply to take the hands of Jesus that are extended to all people and to accept him for who he is. He paused, thanked me again for the play, and said, I'm going to have to think about that. Isn't that great? There was an email that was sent to one of the actors in the play that was forwarded to me. And this is what this friend said to him. Today was such a gift in my life. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity. To be honest, theater has never been my thing. I thought maybe I'd be uncomfortable for a couple hours and then go get a drink. But it would be worth it to support you. I've never been so wrong in my life. Truly, the performance was a real blessing in my life. I laughed, and I cried, and I felt grace and love. And then he sent him a, a second email that same evening and said this, I thought I'd send this to you tonight before the Alzheimer kicks in and eats my brain. I, I saw you shoot me a somewhat surprised look when I said it was the best two and a half hours of my life. I thought about it on my way home, and yeah, not too much hyperbole. It made parts of me whole and made the other parts feel that they could be. Just wanted you to know. In the last scene where Jesus is reaching out to Judas and expressing his love for him, and Judas keeps pushing him away and rejecting him, and Jesus is saying, Judas... I love you. I'm here for you. And finally, Judas collapses into the arms of Jesus and sobs. And then finally, Jesus is washing his feet. Well, after some of those plays, a young Chinese student, she's working on her PhD, came to the director, Mark, and said to him, Mark, I've been having dreams. And Jesus has been speaking to me in my dreams, saying the same things that, that uh, he said to Judas in the play, saying, I love you, I'm here for you. What does that mean? And Mark said, there were a number of people in the room, and I told her, we need to talk. And so he invited her over to their home. And after the performances one evening, Mark got home. She was already there. Mark's wife, Yvette, was sharing with this young Chinese woman, said, Mark, go up with the kids and please pray. <laughs> and she, uh, he did, and she shared the gospel with this young woman that night, and 
told her about how there's a gap between us and God and, and how we're sinful and he's holy and yet God loved us enough to close the gap and make a bridge with the cross so that we could believe in Jesus and be forgiven and, and have him in our lives forever. And uh, that young woman opened her heart to Jesus that night. And Mark said, I think she'll start joining us in church. It just highlighted for me again People are hungry for grace. And I hope we've not gotten so far from it ourselves to remember how much we desperately needed it when we first reached out to Jesus and he'd reached out to us and how we continue to need it in our lives and how much those around us need to hear of God's love for them and the price that has been paid and the grace that has been extended to them. That's the call to action for our church, and I believe for every one of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the message of the cross and the love that was shown to us there and the forgiveness that is available there through your sacrifice. Lord, I pray for us in the church that we would be a people who would care about what you care about have a heart for people whom you love so much infuse us with that Lord and Lord I pray for anyone here who's not yet received the grace that you offer believed in the message that you came to give us and the sacrifice that you were willing to pay for us that today she or he would say yes Jesus I believe and I receive you into my life Help me to follow you all. Lord, that's my prayer for each of us as we look to you and give you thanks. In your name, amen.